You played a tomato for 30 seconds. They want a half a day over schedule because you wouldn't sit down. Yes, it wasn't logical. You were a tomato! A tomato doesn't have logic. A tomato can't move. That's what I said. So if he can't move, how's he going to sit down, George? Hello and welcome to 80s Movie Montage. This is Derek. And this is Anna. And this is Season 2, Episode 1, Tootsie. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah. Season 2. Who'd have thought? I mean, we've got we've had so many things going on over the last year. Who thought we'd keep <laughs> podcasting? I'm excited. I am too, yeah. And I'm really happy that we have a season two. Uh, yeah, and this is a great movie to kick off. It is, because two. it brings us back to our namesake. It sure does. Yeah, this movie is filled with montages, to which we will get. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than but- that brief clip, it's not really filled with many other vegetables. <laughs> Well, I believe he did an endive salad. He does. He yeah, did. he talks about that. Yeah, he, did, he did, talks about some other vegetable. I don't really understand how you get so many vegetable rolls, but in any case, he specifically talks about all of his off-Broadway vegetable shows. He does. Yeah, very specific. Mm-hmm. So not yeah. only is it like off-Broadway work, but it's off-Broadway vegetable, vegetable. work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, Tootsie. This is a fun one, and this I believe is probably the most. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, allotted? Lauded. Not allotted. It's either applauded or lauded, but it's not allotted. Yeah, I I don't know what people think of it now, but at the time it was... I mean, it got 10 Oscar nominations. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I was getting this at. This isn't Bloodsport, is what you're saying. No, it's not I know, Bloodsport. It's not Transformers. <laughs> it's not Bloodsport. It's a legitimate movie that was critically acclaimed... And that all of that exists independently of the fact that it just happened to come out in the 80s. Correct. And what makes this movie especially kind of near and dear to my heart is that it is a comedy Yeah, that is yeah. critically acclaimed because that very rarely happens. Uh, and just in case people were curious, so here are all the different categories that it was nominated for. Best Original Song, Best Film Editing, Best Sound, Best Cinematography, Best Original Screenplay, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for two of the actresses in the film, Best Actor, and Best Picture. Wow. Yeah. So let's dive in because we have a lot to talk about. And we talked a lot with our special guest, uh, Deanna, and it was awesome. So I want to get to that as soon as we can. So movie 1982, Mm -hmm. pretty early on in the decade. So what is really crazy about this movie and we actually do go on quite a bit with Deanna about it is this whole writing part of this movie and were there like 30 writers it's crazy I have never seen so many writers on a movie that did so well the fact that it was nominated for best original screenplay is nuts well because usually you have someone creates something they write it they have this vision and having some cohesive way to get that from paper to film Mm -hmm. is is often part of the success of that. Mm -hmm. And so when there are so many issues arising or when there are so many differences that you end up with at least eight possible writers, including all the uncredited writers, Mm -hmm. it's rare for that to actually come together so tight Mm -hmm. and, and be successful. Exactly. And so, yeah, on this film, we have three credited writers Mm. Then we have four more uncredited writers that are acknowledged as 
uncredited writers. I don't know. It's kind of an oxymoron. Yeah. Um, we but acknowledge then, your work, but we do not credit you for it. Yeah, exactly. You got paid for it. but um, And then there likely were even more writers on this because, like I mentioned in our conversation <laughs> with Deanna, uh, arbitration. Yeah. Uh, went in for this film because so many writers came to the WGA saying, hey, I deserve credit for this movie. Yeah, I think and it's, it's wild that of all the writers that are that are named and actually credited and then all the uncredited, especially given the nature of this mm-hmm. movie, one woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. A good one. Elaine May is a great screenwriter, but yeah. So let's, okay, so let's just get to it. Let's talk about the people who are credited. Um, they, they deserve their due. So... He, uh, the first gentleman, Don McGuire. Mm-hmm. So for, he was story by, so he gets a story by credit for this film. And this uh, was his final credit. He passed away after this film. Mm. So, but a couple of his other credits, I got to admit, um, nothing that I was familiar with. I think because in part, this was his final credit. You know, most of his work was done well before our time. It was, yeah. Uh, so, but I had to, I had to bring this up because it's not even a feature; it's a short, but it has the best title ever. Oh, how to smuggle a hernia across the border? <laughs> I don't even know what that means. It's real easy. You just um, I mean, maybe you tighten your belt or something, or you use like a, a wrap of some I sort. I just thought it was the waggiest title, so I had to say it. Uh, among I think- some. Is yeah. there a sequel? Why? Like, so if, if the why first... you are smuggling your hernia across that, the Because that's my big question. <laughs> why? I don't know. Right. I don't know why. Uh, a couple of his other credits. Walking my baby back home. Mm. I just picked these because they were fun titles. The Delicate Delinquent. <laughs> Hear me good. And then he was the creator of a TV series called Hennessy. That I am not familiar with, but I thought I'd list that one out since he was the creator of it. I always like the title of his screenplay. Suppose they gave a war and nobody came. That's another good one. It's a good title. That's a good title. Okay, so moving on to Larry Gelbart. So he has both a story by and screen by a screenplay by. Okay. Credit. Uh, and then kind of kind of the same, most of his credits not familiar with too much because, again, a lot of his career came before we came along. But uh, he wrote on the TV series Caesar's Hour. Hmm. He was the creator of a TV series, Rollout. Okay. He was the creator of another TV series. I, I put down this one because I felt this was very timely. It's called Karen. <laughs> Up, up. I, th- I thought maybe, hey, you know what? That actually would be a show we could reboot. We might have to look that up and find out we what this uh, see what TV that was about. series. Yeah. I, I bet it's not about someone asking to see someone's manager. I, I agree with you, but uh, a, a show ahead of its time. Yeah. He did the writing on Oh God, so with oh, okay. uh, George Burns. Yeah. He also was a screenwriter on a film that I, again, I picked it just because I thought it was a funny title. It's just called Movie Movie. But I was like, what? what is this about? And I clicked into it. It actually had George C. Scott in it. So it's wow. not like it was just a nothing movie. So I was kind of impressed by that. But probably if anybody is familiar with his name, likely the project that they are most familiar with that he was part of was the TV series MASH. I thought for sure you were going to say 2000's Bedazzled. I but... love that movie. How dare you? <laughs> I love that movie with Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley. It's yeah. a good movie. And yes, I do have that down because he was a screenwriter of that as well. But uh, okay. So moving on to our last gentleman, Murray Schiskel. 
We have determined that is the pronunciation. I think so. I actually feel pretty confident Shizgle. about that. I'm sure somebody could probably easily call me out. But he has a screenplay by credit. Um, of these three gentlemen, he just passed recently in October. Um, unfortunately, because this movie is 82 and it's almost 40 years on, uh, a good number of the people that were involved with it are, are no longer with us. <laughs> um, but kind of behind the scenes. I'm, I'm only but. laughing because I'm like, wow, I, I didn't need to feel older today. But... Uh. <laughs> But uh, so, okay, here's the thing with Mr. Shiskel. Uh, from what I could tell with his credits, he was much more in the playwriting world than he ever was in the film TV world. Yeah. So he was nominated for two Tony Awards. So it's not that he doesn't have street cred. Uh, he certainly does. And, and yeah, just it seems like most of his credited work uh, were screenplays. Yeah. Or what am I saying? They were plays. Scratch the screen. Just plays. Just plays. Just plays. Just plays. So that's who we have for the credited writers. And then among the uncredited writers that get credit via IMDb, we have Barry Levinson, Robert Garland, Robert Kaufman, and then, as you mentioned, Elaine May. So lots of writers on here. Very unusual for a film to do so well, given that circumstance. Okay. So moving on to the director, Sidney Pollack, and he is so interesting. I mean, like we were talking about with Deanna, this is a director, first of all, a very distinguished director, but a distinguished director who also liked to act. And he was really good at it. A really good actor. Uh, so as far as his career goes, he started off in TV, it seems, from what what it looks like via his credits so did a ton of tv work and then he kind of transitioned into film almost exclusively so he did this movie seems to come up for us a lot they shoot horses don't they <laughs> for some reason it comes a bit like every single one of our episodes but he was the director on that uh he directed jeremiah johnson the way we were three days of the condor he won the best director oscar for out of africa with That's Meryl Streep. Not too and, shabby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So one best director for that. He also was the director of The Firm, the remake of Sabrina, which is okay. It's not mm. not my fave. Watch the original. If you're going to want if you're if you're deciding between uh the original Sabrina and the remake, just watch the original. He now I'm actually shifting over into some of his acting work. So he is in Tootsie. Yes. He plays Michael Dorsey's agent, George Fields. So he's in the film. And then a couple of his other acting credits include The Player, Eyes Wide Shut, and the TV show Will and Grace. And also a movie that I think is uh, possibly an underrated movie about the perils of road rage called Changing Lanes with Ben Affleck and Samuel Jackson. Did we bring that up with Deanna? I we feel do like bring that it up. Not yeah. the first time. But <laughs> okay. what we didn't bring up was his role on at least one episode of King of the Hill. My apologies. Yeah, it's all right. Okay. <laughs> so, moving on, cinematography. So, the gentleman who shot this film, Owen Roisman. I feel pretty good about that pronunciation. All right. So he actually did get a nomination for this yeah. movie. Uh, for best cinematography so this guy this guy's legit like legit legit as evidenced by the academy award nomination uh by the multiple 
Academy Award nominations. He was nominated five times, never won uh, in a competitive category. I believe he got like an honorary one uh, towards the end of his life. But has he worked on anything I would recognize? Uh, I believe so. I'm going to I'm going to hope I'm going to hope you're familiar with some of these. So he shot The French Connection. Okay. He shot The Exorcist. The Exorcist, you say. Okay. Great movie. Got it. Uh, shot The Stepford Wives, Three Days of the Condor. So that film just came up a second ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, he again got a, well, okay, so wait, I don't think I mentioned this. So of the ones that he also got Best Cinematography nominations, he was nominated for The French Connection, as well as The Exorcist, as well as Network. That's the next film I was Mm going to bring up. He shot Taps. Vision, cre- vision, uh, vision Quest. Use my words. Yeah. Vision Quest. The Adams Family. And then his last nomination was for White Earp. Okay. I mean, yeah. I want to bring up a few other titles that he also worked on that probably weren't quite as critically acclaimed. Okay. Including The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight from 1971. Do you know and, this movie? No, I've never seen no. Okay. And... <laughs> multiple Madonna video shorts. You know what? I was debating whether, (laughs) well, are they shorts or are they just music videos? They're likely just videos, but they say uh, video short. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I guess that qualifies. Madonna, Gambler, Crazy For You, and Madonna Celebration, the video collection. You know what? It's really bugging me that I can't remember who it was that we were talking about, but we did also talk about, oh, wasn't it um, Jan DeBont? Didn't he also do some Madonna videos? Let's say I, yes. Because I remember I saying so. like how odd that was that he shot Die Hard yeah. and then also did Madonna. Yeah. I think so. So, yeah. So. I was way back in season uh, one, though. Way back. I mean, I mean, but yeah, for real, I can't really remember. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, yes, there we go. Great cinematography as well as great music. There was so, pretty pretty catchy music in this. Really, really catchy. Heavy on the sax. Very 80s. Yeah. Very 80s, yeah. So by a gentleman the name of Dave Grusin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he now this is pretty pretty impressive, I'd say. 111 composing credits. That's unbelievable. Eight Oscar nominations, including Tootsie for best original song. Um, and yeah, so kind of same as a lot of these people. He actually started out in television, did a lot of TV work, hmm. and then likewise kind of transitioned over into film. So he, as far as his composing credits go, he composed on Three Days of the Condor. It's running, running movie in this yeah. episode. Uh, he worked on Heaven Can Wait, for which he had the best, best original score nomination. He had, again, a best original score nomination for The Champ. Best Original Score nomination for On Golden Pond. Mm-hmm. He worked on The Goonies. Uncredited, right? I guess it was uncredited. Yeah, Conductor. Oh, okay. I wonder why that was listed on there. I guess compo- I guess composing. I don't know. Hmm. Um, Lucas. Okay. Ishtar. Well. Yeah. But then he came back big time. Because this is the one win he got uh, for the Milagro Beanfield War. He won Best Original Score. Excellent. And I, before we move on from him, I don't yes. want to forget all of his work on 133 episodes as a composer for Good Times. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. That very cool. cool. Yeah. yeah, I was kind of focusing on his film work, but that's a very cool credit. He also worked on Tequila. Tequila Sunrise. Hmm. Uh, And then, let's see. 
because it's like a mouthful to keep saying best original score nomination, he got those noms. So rounding out his eight noms for The Fabulous Baker Boys, Havana, and The Firm. And then he also worked on The Bonfire of the Vanities and one of my beloved movies, Hope Floats. Nice. So that is Mr. Dave Grusen. Okay. So although we have a lot of people in this movie that are like kind of new to us and uh, that's fun because that means we get to talk about him, we just discussed uh, the editing team that – and even though it's season two and it'd be like, okay, well, we could kind of start over – we literally just talked about these guys during our our Scrooged episode. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fine to uh, hey if you haven't listened to it was this like a month episode, ago. Yeah, so, we we framed it as a Christmas uh, thing, but you know what? It doesn't matter. You can listen to it whenever. You can listen to it whenever you yeah. want. And I mean, we do talk about them at length because I remember being so like in awe of this father son editing team. I thought yeah. it was really cool. So it's Frederick and William Steinkamp. Mm-hmm. And so if you do want to hear more about this really unique father son editing duo, go check out our script episode. Because with 30 writers, those two probably put some work in. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, at that point, I mean, the, they it was really uh, Sydney, right? Yeah. I mean, they're now they're going off of what Pollock shot. And oh, I didn't yeah. mean to besmirch Mr. Pollock that way. Yeah, I mean, well, I, okay, moving on because that, that's the whole <laughs> conversation of ours. Yeah, okay, so moving on to the stars of this movie, and yeah, this is the first time that we're talking about the lead, Dustin Hoffman. It is, that's crazy. We didn't it, talk about him out of all the episodes, he didn't come up once. I don't think he did that's crazy i don't think he did either we just didn't do a movie that he wasn't he in heathers no okay interesting let's get into it then um let's get into him okay so he plays michael dorsey slash dorothy michaels Hmm. which he is he is credited twice in the film if you look at the closing credits he is listed twice for both characters uh which i thought was really funny yeah i mean i'm trying to think like if you're if you were gonna have a a woman's name if i was going to yeah i mean mine if i was going off of like what my name is i guess it'd be like because that's what he did right like he kind of took his last name and then made that his first name yeah so i would be like i guess just like andrew or aaron like that's probably the what would you be i'd likely be derica derica or drop the d (laughs) and i'll just be erica Oh, That's, that actually works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that actually works. Okay. All right. So, yeah, Dustin Hoffman, esteemed actor, seven Oscar nominations, uh, including the Best uh, best Actor nomination for Tootsie, and he's won twice. So among his work, he got noms for two of his very early projects, The Graduate and Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. Um, walking here. That's what I <laughs> yeah. know. Midnight Cowboy. Exactly. So, okay. So I had to bring up this movie because again, it is the most amazing title. Who is Harry Kellerman and why is he saying those terrible things about me? That's a long That's a movie title. title. Yeah. It's crazy. So, but he's in it. He also got, uh, and uh, okay. So I'll just preface it in saying that all of his, like literally every single one of his Oscar nominations is for best actor. So no supporting work um all best actors so he also got a nom for the movie lenny and then he was in the film all the president's men Mm -hmm. very timely uh marathon man 
He then won, won his first Oscar for Kramer versus Kramer, which yeah. also won Best Picture that year. And then real kind of, I mean, like, there's probably a couple credits in between. I just kind of listed the bigger ones. But, like, what a roller coaster of a career. Because, like, he goes from, like, Kramer versus Kramer, for which he won, to Ishtar. I mean, a couple years later. Yeah. And then rebounds big time with Rain Man, for which he also won Best Actor. To go from Ishtar to Rain Man is, like, a pretty dramatic swing. I mean, that's a 180. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would be like if uh, John Travolta had been in Battlefield Earth and then Pulp Fiction. Yeah, that's a good comparison. But I think I think the ops it was the actual yeah, yeah yeah. So, uh, and then some of his kind of more recent work, uh, like the last thirty-ish years, Hook. So he plays yeah. Captain Hook and Hook. He's in Outbreak. He got, I believe, his last last nomination so far for Wag the Dog. And then some of his other films, Sphere, I Heart Huckabees. Uh, he is in Meet the Fockers and Little Fockers. And then he's been the voice of Shifu in Kung Fu Panda. Yep. And then the sequel and then the third film. Um, and then probably of his most recent work, he's in the Meyer Witz stories. Oh. So Mr. Dustin Hoffman. And we talk about him a lot in... Our conversation with Deanna, not just in terms of his, you know, acting in this film, but also kind of the role he played, which there is some kind of, you know, back and forth between other players that were also in this film or worked on it as far as like yeah. what his role was in the creation of this idea it and was, this character. I would say big. He played so. a pretty big role yeah, in this movie getting so. made in the first place. I mean, you know, maybe there's a little bit of hyperbole on his end about to what degree he was the person or, you know, one of the writers. I I, I always feel kind of badly because, like, just give people their proper credit. Like, yeah. it doesn't diminish from you to give other people their credit. But, yeah, I would agree that he probably had a pretty big role. I mean, you talk about a big swing from Ishtar to Rain Man. This is... I mean, this is going from Kramer versus Kramer to Tootsie. Yeah. So yeah. both like very highly critically acclaimed movies, but what a what a change in direction there. I mean, if he's got, it, you can't say he doesn't have range. The guy's got yeah. range. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he can kind of do whatever. So you know what I'd like to see him in though? Horror movie. I thought you were going to say The Mandalorian. He'd be good in The Mandalorian. Sure. I could see him in yeah. that. But yeah, I'd like to see him in some kind of horror film. Okay, so moving on to the actress who plays Julie, Jessica Lange. Mm -hmm. uh, again, a very um, critically acclaimed actress in her own right. She has six, six Oscar nominations, um, including Best Supporting Actress win for Tootsie. So she, of the two that were nominated, and we'll bring up the other shortly, she won for this role. Nice. Um, and she overall has won two Oscars. So I, I'm trying to think. I guess I guess I do think of this movie when I think of Jessica Lange. This is probably the role I'm most familiar with with her. But I also, uh, you know, sometimes think about her with the remake of King Kong. Yeah. That was her very first film role. Yeah, that's crazy. So she's in King Kong, uh, All That Jazz, The Postman Always Rings Twice. It's another remake. <laughs> she so okay so then she gets like kind of back to back to back best actress nominations so for the films francis 
country and sweet dreams unfortunately i'm not really familiar with any of those movies i was kind of shocked that i i just didn't know anything about them but um yeah so she gets nominations for all three and then she and we're still talking the 80s here yeah so we're not even out of the 80s yet uh crimes of the heart she gets another nomination for another film I'm not familiar with called Music Box. Okay. Uh, then she does Cape Fear. She wins again Best Actress this time for Blue Sky. And then beyond that, she's in some of her other credits, Losing Isaiah, Rob Roy. Have you seen that movie? I am aware of it. I've, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is. Uh, Hush, <laughs> Big Fish. And then most recently, so she was in the TV miniseries Feud Joan. No, switch that. Feud Bet and Joan. Yeah. Uh, Joan Crawford in real life would have loved if I had said Joan first. But in yeah. any case. Uh, she, and then it seems like she has like a really good relationship with Ryan Murphy, uh, the creator behind American Horror Story, because she's like all over that TV show. Yeah. And The Politician. So even though... It seems like historically most of her career has been in film. Lately, she's kind of pivoted over to television and done quite well for herself. So, okay, so moving on to Terry Gar. Poor Sandy. Poor Sandy. She's so good in this movie. And then she was the other actress who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress and lost out to Jessica Lange. So she's amazing. Love this actress so much. I so identify her with the 80s because of, like, some of the really awesome roles that she had. Yeah. Um, so some of her earlier work, she was on the TV series The Sunny and Cher Comedy Hour. And then she was in – and same thing. She, this woman has range. I know a lot of people identify her for her comedic work, but she was in The Conversation. Great movie. Uh, she was in Young Frankenstein, so that is one of her comedy pieces. Yeah. Uh, she was in Old God. Uh, I know I know you know her from... Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Correct. Yeah. Yep. She's in The Sting 2, which... I'm not as familiar with that I one. I don't know if I knew that there was a Sting 2. Yeah, I think I, I, think I was aware of it, but... Okay. Eh. Uh, I feel like most people know her and love her from the movie Mr. Mom. Yes. That is like the Terry Gar movie. Yeah. Um, no offense. Michael Keaton, but, uh, <laughs> and then after hours, and then it's kind of funny because she has a couple credits where she plays herself, like she plays herself in the movie, The Player, and then she also plays herself in the TV show, Murphy Brown, just like kind of like one, like a one-off episode. It's not like she's recurring on Murphy Brown. Um, she also, I don't remember her, but she's in Dumb and Dumber. Do you remember her in Dumb and Dumber? I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, she's done a lot of stuff with, between like some of the movies you mentioned and TV and even some like voice stuff for yeah at least one video game the last two credits i was going to mention she has a like a bit recurring role on the tv show friends and she is so good in it she plays phoebe's birth mother and she's just because phoebe you know very eccentric character she has these little idiosyncratic kind of bits and pieces to her and Terry Gar completely picks up on that energy. And you see in this character, you're like, yeah, that's totally Phoebe's mom. Like, it's really, really amazing. I'm kind of wondering if she got an Emmy nom for that. She should have if she didn't, because it was a really great little role. And then um, she was also on 10 episodes of the Batman Beyond series. Yes. And also another King of the Hill episode. Okay. Yeah. All right. 
So moving on to Dabney Coleman, who plays kind Ron. of the skeezy director of the show, Ron. Yeah. So this gentleman, he is 89 years old and he is still working. I mean, he's going strong. Yeah, exactly. So as I mentioned with several people we have talked about already, started out with a ton of TV work. And then, and he's kind of just gone back and forth his whole career, which I feel like that is probably not at all unusual right now in current times. But kind of back in the day, you kind of picked a lane. Yeah. Yeah. Like you either were a TV actor or you were a film actor. And there was a certain connotation to either one of those things. Absolutely. And, and, you were a, just a bigger deal for the most part yes. if you were a movie person. So you wouldn't, I guess, sully yourself mm-hmm. by going into TV. Mm-hmm. And if you were in TV, you probably would like to be in, in film. film, but you kind of just end up on that track, it seemed like. Yep. And so very kind of unusual for him to kind of get to go back and forth, but that's cool. Yeah. So- and especially with streaming stuff, with, with more content being viewed through streaming platforms and just the way we watch everything changing, that probably is just better for for everybody because you see mm-hmm. people in roles and projects that you otherwise probably wouldn't have because they wouldn't have gone towards that more TV direction. Yes. So we all win. We all win. And among some of his credits, uh, so I had to like call this out because again, great title, The Scalp Hunters. Oh, that's dark. Yeah, it is dark. Um, so he was on a TV series. It's kind of an interesting name. It's just called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I'm not like stuttering. It's like you double it up. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Yeah. Is the TV show. And then there must have been, now I'm not familiar with it, but I'm assuming there was a spinoff because there's another TV series that he was on called Forever Fernwood. And he plays, the character has the same name, <laughs> Merle Jeter. So, <laughs> so I'm like, that's got to be the same person, right? It's got to um, be. So, yeah. I feel like of his film work, probably, I'm going to go out on a ledge here and say that most people probably identify him as the kind of skeezy boss in 9 to 5. Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, because I think of his character in 9 to 5, and it there are like bits and pieces of that in almost everything else he, yeah. he is. So, in- 9 to 5, on Golden Pond, War Games... He was on the TV show Buffalo Bill, which I'm not familiar with. He was in the movie Dragnet. Um, He was in a series of TV series that, again, I've not heard of, but the Slap Maxwell story. Sure. Drexel's class. Madman of the People. And, of course, Cloak and Dagger. Amazing 80s movie that may may come up on this. You know it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a great movie. Hmm. And okay. also a really weird movie is in 1990 called Short Time, where I think he played, he may have played a cop. I can't remember all of the specific details other than he got really bad medical news and thought that he had to like die in, in like the line of fire. So I think he was a cop. So he puts himself in all of these situations, hoping that he will get killed so that his family will get the uh, insurance payout. It's a comedy wow okay yeah and then at the yeah, end that sounds super funny turns out <laughs> turns out the medical results uh-huh. got switched with someone else he's fine that poor other person <laughs> Jeez. okay let's just move on <laughs> he's also in you've got mail the film inspector gadget and then of his more recent work the tv shows the guardian and boardwalk empire nice so all right. So moving on, this is the last person we're going to kind of cover in depth. Uh, the actor Charles Durning, who plays Julie's father, Les. Mm-hmm. 
a really interesting fellow and an interesting career. He's no longer with us. But one thing that I thought was so interesting, so he has over 200 acting credits. He has 216 acting credits. That's nothing to be ashamed. That's like pretty incredible. I'm not going to sneeze at that. Yeah, don't sneeze at that. No. Uh, but he didn't get his first credit until he was 30 years old. Wow. Which is kind of on the older side to have racked up so many credits. Um, he did a ton of TV appearances. And so when I say appearances, like not stuff that he really had a recurring role on, but just like one-offs with a ton of different shows. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, kind of then segued into film and then later in his career kind of came back to television. But some of his, uh, credits, you might know him from The Sting, mm-hmm. uh, Dog Day Afternoon. He did a TV series called The Cop and the Kid. Okay. Don't know it. I do know the Muppet movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. He was also in When a Stranger Calls and also When a Stranger Calls Back. Oh, so, they called back? Apparently, Did yeah. you want him to? No. That seems bad. No, you don't want okay. that person calling back. Okay. Yeah. He received his, I think, first and... Oh, no, that's not true. He got two uh, Oscar noms. The first supporting actor nomination was for The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Mm. Then he was in Two of a Kind. His second supporting actor nom was for To Be or Not To Be. I have no idea if that has anything to do with Shakespeare or Hamlet or what, but uh, he was in the movie Dick Tracy, The Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah. And then this is when he kind of segues back into TV. So he was on the TV shows Evening Shade, Now and Again. Then the the film State in Maine, great movie. Go see it. I mean, not in the theater. It's older, but you could probably rent it. Yeah. Okay, moving on. So he was on the TV show Everybody Loves Raymond. Okay. And then I thought you would appreciate this. I know I I usually kind of overlook a lot of the cartoon work or animated work, but he plays the voice of Francis Griffin and Family oh, Guy. Okay. Yeah. He uh, he also was a recurring role in the TV series Rescue Me, mm-hmm. which uh, is actually a pretty pretty decent show. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I never really got into it, yeah, it was but an interesting, I interesting have heard show. it's a great show so okay so we would be remiss if we did not bring up Bill Murray and Gina Davis they both are also in this film this in fact was Gina Davis's very first film role but we kind of just talked about these two not too long ago and we talk about both of them a little bit when we're uh talking with yeah Deanna, we do so. we do actually so if you want to hear more about us kind of talk about bill murray his career you can go back to ghostbusters and scrooge because so you can listen to scrooge and now you'll hear about those editors and bill murray yeah but really and scrooge two we're just going to tell you to go back to ghostbusters to hear more about him well, okay, we, talk, we yeah. will. Yes, I do do that. But because he is the star of Scrooge, you can't get around talking about him. We didn't even so try. He actually, you know, is talked about at length yeah. in both episodes. That's that's a fair point. And then Gina Davis, we talk about her in our Beetlejuice episode. Yeah. So go check that one out. Okay. Film synopsis. Oh, film synopsis. Yeah. What's this going to be? All right. Ready? Yeah. Michael Dorsey, an unsuccessful actor, disguises himself as a woman in order to get a role on a trashy hospital soap. First of all, it is kind of trashy. 
but it felt I don't, a little harsh. Yeah, I don't, it, think, I don't know if that's necessary. Yeah, I felt like, oh, that's a little. I mean, yeah, it it's certainly not propping itself up to be some kind of uh, legit, like acclaimed TV show. Yeah, but inherently, daytime yeah. television is. Other than that, it's that's uh, that's fine. Yeah. I'm, Looking at the uh, the story, the, you know, IMDb gives you the synopsis and the full storyline and plot keywords. Yeah. Plot keywords are, are all over the place with this one. Okay. Reputation. Girl in panties. Unexpected kiss. Whoa. Lesbian. Those are the plot keywords. Who is in charge of that? that Who uh... is in charge of that? Uh, I, I Yeah. So I've never even noticed the plot keywords before, but scrolling through, I saw that and I thought, "Mm, I should bring that up because that's really bizarre. That is very bizarre. Yeah. Um, Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, as we mentioned at the top of our conversation, we are going into season two strong with the montage. We are. This, I mean, look, there are a lot of movies that we go through. Don't have any montages. This one has <laughs> enough for all of them. I counted five. Okay. Uh, and I mean, it. not only are we going strong into the montage, I mean, the film just opens on a montage. It almost has a montage song. Yeah. It's yeah, the same song for yeah. a couple of them. Yeah. Like, you know, you hear that song, you're like, oh, montage coming up. And I mean, they're all, they all do a lot of work. I mean, the opening montage in particular is really effective because you have to get set up right away who this character is. And so it's very effective in showing that he is this like kind of desperately aspiring actor who also is really difficult uh, to work with. And then on the side, he's, you know, trying to teach other people to act like, so he's a hustler. Yeah. He's hustling really hard and he has no lack of work ethic and probably talent, but he is just really difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. And so they do a really great job, I think, of setting that up. And then like some of the other montages, I mean, the other two that I think are particularly effective are when it's showing him going through his stages of like ascending fame. Oh yeah, the whatever whichever and montage it's like, Go Tootsie. Yeah. yeah, it's all the different photo shoots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's the best montage it. in the whole, whole that's, damn movie. That's kind of my favorite, yeah, because yeah. I just love that song. Yeah. Um, so that's a really effective one. And then I also really like when uh, they're showing the montage of him as Dorothy at Les's farm with Julie. Yeah, with all the, all the like really soft lighting and glamour shot. To kind of yeah, it's hilarious. Where yeah, yeah. Uh, but but it's also, you know, it, it's certainly it's a kind of a mood change from the rest of the film. It is though. The one problem with that montage is I think that features the uh, the cooking, the cooking tasting oh, scene. Does it? I think so. We'll talk yeah. about that. A little yeah, we bit talk more. about that with Deanna. Um, but yeah, overall, I think it does a really good job. I mean, as much as he can like be legitimately in love with somebody. It's showing him progressing to that point where it's not just kind of a lustful thing anymore, that yeah. he actually is kind of seeing her as a like three-dimensional person. Yeah. And um, and then also just kind of being part of this life that he's not accustomed to with like family and um, 
being in a role set. So it's it's nice. It's kind of a nice break from the rest of the film. If you added up the time for all of the five different montages, mm-hmm. how long do you think? How much montage well, time do you think we get? By virtue of what they are, montages aren't usually that long. So I'd say that all five collectively are still under 10 minutes. Okay, so Bloodsport still hasn't beat. <laughs> Is that nice. I had no idea that's what you're getting. I should have known. I should have known. Um, okay, so before we get into our conversation with Deanna, the only the last thing I just wanted to bring up, because I feel like it is a little bit maybe it's a little strong to say elephant in the room, but like why is it called Tootsie? Yeah, why is it? Well, I've heard different things. Um, what is listed on IMDB, which really isn't isn't really the end all be all like anybody can actually post to it so sometimes like the quote facts are whatever did you post this i did not i did not post it but uh, supposedly it's called tootsie because that was the name of dustin hoffman's mother's dog (laughs) okay yeah i i still don't really know how that fits in um i mean i know that at one point, Ron calls her Tootsie, I believe. So they like they kind of work it in. He does. Um, it felt like it was kind of like a uh, a term that would have been used in kind of like a an offhand, not necessarily outright disparaging, but kind of like a right. dismissive sort of manner. Yeah. And contrast mm-hmm. that with the the character and, and the importance of the Dorothy character. Mm-hmm. So. It's it could be that or it could be like a dog's name. I don't know. It could be a dog's name. And then one. there's the great song that yeah. you know, it so thinking of that song written for a dog makes it even better. I mean, it's hilarious. But uh yeah, so I mean, if well, I I will save that. I will save that for our uh call to action. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But I think for now, let's get into our conversation with Jana. Let's do it. And so we are so excited to kick off the very first episode of our second season with our really wonderful, awesome friend and my personal fellow grad school friend, yeah. Deanna Keem. Welcome Hello. to the show, Deanna. Thank you. <laughs> that was wonderful. That was a Thank wonderful introduction. Thank you. Thank you. We are... We're so stoked because, first of all, like I said, you and I, we went to film school together, so you obviously have a love for the medium, and also this is the very first episode of our second season, so that's exciting for us, but this is also just an awesome film that we're really stoked to talk to you about. Me too. Yay. And (laughs) so we're going to just jump in because I think that there's honestly like a lot there's there's a lot of layers to this there's a whole lot that we could talk about. yeah 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 there's a lot to discuss so all right so tootsie this uh yeah 1982 really early in the decade i know that for most of these movies people are pretty young when they catch them for the first time but i'm curious since it's a little bit more of an adultish film Mm -hmm. How old were you when you first saw this movie? And it would have been, I mean, it would have been when I was, as soon as it came out on video. So definitely early eighties. I don't remember seeing it in the, in the theater, but we, as you know, Anna, you've watched movies with my mother. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We, I mean, we watched so many movies growing up and as a family, we didn't watch kids' movies. We watched Tootsie. We watched 
Nine to Five. We watched um, Arthur. Some of these movies that, looking back, are a little, little inappropriate for a seven-year-old. But um, <laughs> a lot of Dabney Coleman. Yeah, oh, you, it was, a lot of was Dabney your Coleman. Household a Dabney Coleman household. Oh, we did. Yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, which I watched by myself with my brother, is more Dabney Coleman in Cloak and Dagger. But oh, yeah. um, <laughs> that movie's right? so good, so good. Movie. But um, so I was, I was quite young. This was one of our like family movies growing up that we watched all the time. So that's interesting because uh, now that you mention it, because you're the youngest mm-hmm. in your family um, of the siblings, so that makes a lot of sense. I mean, do you feel like that changed your perception of film that you were kind of introduced to. I'm not, I'm not saying adult themed because that has kind of a weird connotation, but like just more adultish films than, than the average kid. No, absolutely. I guess I hadn't really made that connection of me being the youngest for that reason, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I didn't, I was more patient that it didn't have to be, you know, it didn't have to be uh, animated or it didn't have to mm-hmm. be something like that. Or I was just more patient with watching stuff and I enjoyed it. But I also got that sort of training with, we watched tons of black and white movies. I mean, I watched mm-hmm. so many Catherine Hepburn movies growing up, mm-hmm. right? And, and all of the screwball comedies and lots, I mean, we, we were all across the board. So I had so much patience with it that I kind of developed a... Patience is probably not the best word. What appreciation? It's an appreciation that not something flashy doesn't have to happen mm-hmm. in every frame for me for it to draw me in and to to keep with it. And then I appreciated the the kind of nuances and, and little moments, which I think are all throughout Tootsie. But those mm-hmm. little moments, I I got to um, take in and appreciate because of also the repeated viewing. <laughs> I would say I would argue that that Dustin Hoffman in that flashy red sequin dress is the definition oh, of flashy. That's that a, is true. Flashy scene. You sometimes need to avert your eyes because it can, you know, that could cause Anna, some kind Anna, of seizure. Like multiple glamour shot yeah. images of of him as Dorothy. Um, but yeah, still so unattractive. Sorry, <laughs> I know. Poor guy. Poor guy. He just. I mean, he had literally every resource available to him to make him no. a hot chick, and it just wasn't going to happen. No. Um, but what you just said, first of all, I'm like learning so much about, like, I've known you for so long, but I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense about why you have this this particular like love of film that you do. Um, but I'm curious, since you still were on the young side for seeing mm-hmm. Jitsi, how much do you feel like you were really grasping? about the film like what to you if I mean I know this is a big ass because you were a kid but like Mm -hmm. (laughs) what what was the first sensation of seeing the film was it just like a funny movie to you like did you feel like you're picking up on kind of a lot of these uh feminist right oh absolutely not um no because but I think much of my what was what I found funny was what my family found funny and so they would laugh at you know, Bill Murray. And so then the next time we watch it, I was paying attention and Oh, this is funny. And so I started kind of to hone in on those things because I was taking their lead and, and kind of understanding a little bit what was going on. But I think with Tootsie, I remember really liking Terry Garr 
Mm-hmm. And I also remember liking her because she was also the mom and Mr. Mom. Right. Yeah. And so those kinds of connections that I made. And so I liked her character. And of course you watch it now and she's still funny, but poor Sandy. Boy, she treated poorly. So there's yeah. um, but no, I think it was really just like cues from my family. But it, I mean it wasn't just with Tootsie, it was with other things because I couldn't I mean, we watched Smoking the Bandit all the time, which a lot of that went right over my head. But mm-hmm. I loved watching it because my family loved watching it. Man, talking you know? about movies that have not aged well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. That that is a topic to be had at some point. <laughs> right. But let's let's uh because you just brought up two characters that I mean, first of all so many strong performances in this yes. film. Um, yes. Pretty much across the board, every actor who's in this is like on, at the top of their game. Like they all, right. I mean, Gina Davis is definitely like, this was her first film role. Yeah. So, so she was green, but like the rest of them were just like, they had incredible. And, and she too went on to have an incredible career mm-hmm. in the 80s. But like this was like them each in their individual primes almost. Well, when we we just yeah. went over uh, Scrooge and we talked about how unsubtle Bill mm-hmm, Murray's mm-hmm. performance was in Scrooge, and that was by design. But then you look at him in Tootsie, and he's he's like so measured. That mm-hmm, performance mm-hmm. is is so intended good. to be like this contrast to Dustin Hoffman, whose character is just frenetic almost one hundred percent of the time, right. and that I think is just Bill Murray's strength is like this, like subtle, like deadpan humor that he brings to it. Right. And he also was given, and this is something that, I mean, I think I love to keep talking about performances, but I want to talk about the director, but the director is what gave that space. I mean, he was so much of Bill Murray's stuff was ad-libbed, but it was within this, he worked within the world. So he wasn't doing ad-libs to, to be, you know, just for the sake of it within that kind of world that was created and that he he did stuff that especially with the theater world i think made it seem funnier but also a bit um closer to what that character particularly michael is is going through in the theater world but um she was so he was so good um jessica lang to me is she's so lovely and as you were talking about Derek, like that frenetic energy of Dustin Hoffman, that she's the opposite. And with that, I think it's one of her best performances because her calmness and and kind of grace, even when she's making poor choices or different things, just makes her stand out and gives that balance. And you understand why he's drawn to her, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, she has she's a real so sense of herself too. Yeah, she does drink yeah. too much. She, yeah, she's. Uh, I mean, it's kind of comical. At some, <laughs> like, you could have a drinking game off of her drinking. Like every time yeah. she has a glass in her hand, drink. Um, well, she re-poured a full glass. Like, yeah. why are you pouring more into the glass? Because, <laughs> because she just needs it. She really needs yeah. it. Um, <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right, and I love her performance. I think what's really interesting is that. So both she and Terry Gar were up for Best Supporting Actress, Lang won for Best mm-hmm. Supporting Actress. I think in large part, because I, I don't want to pit them against each other. I, I think that that's like not a healthy thing to do. But I I do get personally a lot more out of Gar's performance just because I guess in part I really sympathize with her. And, and also I just, my heart 
breaks for how poorly treated she is yeah. throughout throughout the film. Like I sympathize with like her frustration with the industry that she's in. But yeah. I think that perhaps one reason why Lang, first of all, she is the so-called love interest. So I think just inherently there's sure. kind of more focus on her. So-called? Well, it's weird to say that because like I, I don't want to say that she is just outright the love interest because I kind of feel like that is almost assuming that right she has her own story outside of the one with yeah and i think that to make an assumption that they might get together in the future is not where i want to go because he i don't think on well we can get into a lot but like i don't think he's right for her and i don't think that like and i and i appreciate that they left that a little bit open at the close Mm -hmm. of the film that like, okay, maybe a friendship can still be sustained, but it doesn't necessarily mean that something romantically is going to evolve. Yeah, I I guess. I mean, he, he says to her dad that like he's in love with her. So you get the sense that that's what he's pursuing. And I think it's like, you can say that she's, she's more than just a so-called she's definitely his love interest, but also she's a very important part of the story independent of that. Yes. I mean, I think that, like this is going to be an interesting conversation. I think that <laughs> him simply saying I'm in love with her does not mean that he gets to have her. No. So, right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I just mean that he she is his love interest. Yes. Whether or not he is hers. Correct. Unanswered. Because well, in some ways, what she has learned from Dorothy, which it shouldn't take Dorothy to help her realize this, is that she doesn't need to be in a relationship. Right, right, like, and that, and if she's going to be, it needs to be so that it's fulfilling for her, not just because, well, I have to be dating someone. Um, so yeah, it's not. It's a great way to distinguish it, Derek. He's he's she's not his love interest. Is that what you said? Whatever you said, that was really good. (laughs) I I mean, I would say that maybe she's looking for a relationship not predicated on a month long lie. Yes. Well, and yeah. honestly, she's a character who just, she needs to like, just be alone for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, she needs, she needs to reconsider how much wine she pours herself. Yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah. one thing, so this is just one thing I want to bring up before I forget, because this is one thing that has really bothered me about this film oh. that never comes up. It is the most petty thing, but okay. So her daughter, Amy is only 14 months old. She's just a little bit over a year. Yeah. So I feel like, so was she, uh, but she's this big star on the show. So was she pregnant on the show? Did they work that into the storyline? Like, I I love that this is (laughs) my big thing about the movie. Not big thing, but the thing I keep thinking about is at the end, when he totally changed this story during a live performance, what did they do the next day with all the tapes? That yeah. too. There are <laughs> story issues with the soap opera in this movie that I'm. That one I think I was so blown away by his like live performance reveal that he just improv and made up. Well, he did like have a fifteen or twenty minute break to like create all of that, but then afterwards, I thought, so what, I wonder what happened with that show. Yeah, because like, they weren't done filming. Yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. They still that was only out. the second reel or whatever they had yes. to do live. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, I appreciate that they did set up earlier in the film that they work with some company that keeps screwing up their footage. But I'm like, you're like the biggest soap on TV. <laughs> After the first screw up, you should have dumped them. Like, why did you continue to work with this company? I mean, they have a contract in place. Maybe they're working it was, through it. It was a little bit contrived <laughs> that, like, 
anyway, it's fine. <laughs> but what I wanted to get back to is just in terms of uh, laying in, in Gar, what I am disappointed by is that I feel like there wasn't really closure to Gar's character. And that in part is why <laughs> Lang had just inherently the stronger character to play with and why perhaps she got the Oscar. And it's not like, you know, Oscars are not the end all be all, but I feel like, yeah, I think actually my, my, my feeling I suppose was that comedy is rarely acknowledged by Mm -hmm. the Academy Mm -hmm. and that Terry Garr's performance was more comedic Mm -hmm. than Jessica Lange's. Also that Jessica Lange, this was after it was a different role for her like right there was the king kong and it was just a, it, it was just different and i think that makes a difference um but yeah i think terry guard's character though like outside of the not getting the oscar but it is it it she does not get closure outside of the fact that you know that she gets that she does continue to work as an actor but you don't know if does she have more confidence now? Does she, you know, those are the things that she started with that, you know, Michael started out as kind of a good friend um, to try to help her. And then because apparently he can't tell her the truth, he sleeps with her. But um, yeah, she doesn't get, we don't know what she learned. We don't know how she grew. Also, Whereas you, you know that with, with Jessica Lang's character with Julie. I would say that, that Michael's form of seduction was particularly disturbing in that he just had his pants around his ankles, his arms outstretched. He is awful at hitting on women. Like, Like, what the hell was that? He comes on so strong. It's like, take it down a notch, dude. Like, at his birthday party? Yeah. Yeah. He says to that one woman, thank you for liking me. I mean, it's really... Oh, cringe. (laughs) Like... So, and I'm like, does that actually work for you? Like it, he, and I get that that's very deliberate. They're setting him up to be a certain way Mm -hmm. so that they show the growth throughout his Dorothy. Like it's all clear as day, but. um, The psychological trauma that he inflicted on Sandy makes him an awful coach. He, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. He's a shitty friend of Sandy. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's why it's like, that shift that that lack of telling her the truth that when he got the role of Dorothy that he he thinks she's so fragile that somehow she'll be happier knowing that he lied Mm -hmm. than just telling her the truth I got the role and this is the situation but I think that's that kind of I'm going to lie to women to protect them isn't doesn't just happen there right doesn't Dabney Coleman's character says the same thing. I'm gonna, I'm yep. lying to Julie. So this idea of you having to protect women from the truth because we can't handle it is is Michael does the same thing. Like that he doesn't that he criticizes Dabney Coleman for. He's doing the same thing to to Sandy. That, that's like a big point of the the movie in general is like it took this man to show women everywhere it's, how they should like yeah. behave and stand up for themselves it is super problematic okay yeah. <laughs> yeah we can get into that um i just want to say real quick though one last thing on sandy as much as obviously after michael reveals who he truly is on the show you knew that there was going to be uh 
interaction between him and Julie. But I also was, I mean, I guess it gets a little redundant because he also had one with her father, but he absolutely deserved <laughs> to have that face to face with Sandy. Yeah. And she never sure. got that either. So yeah. anyway, but yeah, let's talk about how a guy taught women how to be more themselves. Thank God for this, <laughs> for this guy that like just stepped up and showed women everywhere. Like, Hey, look, it's, it's fucking easy. Let me show you how it's done. Thank you, Dustin Hoffman. Well, yeah, I guess the thing that is, yeah, thank you, Dustin Hoffman, but also that somehow it takes for it to be true, the man has to experience it. So you can't just take a woman's word for it being difficult. Mm -hmm. He had to experience it. Or how about just like pay attention to what's happening around you? Um, so, and to see, I wonder why I just get to, they, you know, the cab responds to me, but it doesn't respond to the woman. I wonder why that is, mm-hmm. you know, that you didn't have to dress up as a woman to actually believe women. Um, but that, I mean, that's the point of the, I don't know, point of the story, but certainly the arc of it, but it's ridiculous. But it's certainly something that I never paid attention to when I watched it when I was younger. Yeah. You didn't pick up on that? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> I mean, I'm like a lot of movies. I dressed up as a lady. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't, I don't think I understood much about this movie when I first saw it, but unlike a lot of movies where I definitely have at least like, I have some memory of seeing it in a theater. I I have no idea when I first saw this, this movie in its entirety, but it's taken a couple, a couple like full viewings from start to end to like, every time I watch it, I kind of like peel back another layer and Mm -hmm. think like, Hmm, that's uh. That's wild. I don't. It. I mean, well, it's not all good and it's not all bad. I think that what I what I take away from the film is both. I'll just say like the main characters of Michael and Julie, they learn from each other. So that's great. Mm-hmm. That's right. great that they both grew through their relationship with each other. I think that. Sure, there's. um there's something that really bumps me from this idea that um, that a guy taught a woman how to be more herself, and and to your point, Deanna, that that this character only really took a minute to kind of think about what it is like for a woman to move through this world at that mm-hmm. time by being a woman, and and as we were kind of joking about earlier, a, a not attractive one. How at dare that. you? <laughs> I know. He's a very handsome woman. But I mean, I think for I think for it being 82, here's the one thing that I was actually surprised by. Cause I think they could have gone with it. And I think that this does speak to um in part the sensibilities of you mentioned the director, Sidney Pollock. Uh they could have really gone overboard with especially Bill Murray's <laughs> character, with the reaction to him in women's clothing and makeup. And all that. And I do think that that is actually more subtle and not as like uh, used as a punchline as it could have been for that point in time. Right. Well, and I th- it's also, I mean, probably is Sydney Pollock's, but it's also um, direction. But even though she's uncredited, I mean, Elaine May, it's yes. known how much influence she had in this movie in terms of the structure, adding, adding the character of Jeff giving mm-hmm. more shape, even though we wanted more, more shape to Sandy and, and certain things like that. But it's also her humor and 
that she, I mean, she's so fantastic, but she is, it's a buildup. She's not, that's her, her sense of humor is kind of building up and being subtle. So the idea that it's not about a movie, it's not a movie about somebody in drag. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah. they, they brought a nice balance to it. But um, I, I think when it comes to what he learned, I think he did recognize and again, he shouldn't have to go through this to recognize it, but that's what he had to go through to recognize that it's difficult for a woman. I think what gets me though, is that when he recognized it, he still felt at a certain point that he was the one to talk to women about their experience. Do you mm-hmm. remember when he was talking to his agent? He's like, I yep, should do yep. specials and I could, yeah, I should do a, I can, a one woman I show. Can, <laughs> well, I can take, there's great roles. I can play this role and this role. And I was thinking with, there's already not that many roles for women in theater. Yeah. Can you not take them from women in theater? So interesting because that that becomes such a relevant issue for today. Yeah. There, there is so yeah. much discussion about, you know, what, how do you pursue roles? Like if you don't happen to be somebody who identifies as, you know, part of the LGBTQ plus community, can you take a role mm-hmm. that has a character that is within that community? Or if you happen to be somebody who is not like has a, a kind of disability, can you play somebody who does? You know, yeah. so so I think that that's, that's so interesting. Yeah. It's so relevant today, but it it is. I mean, what he what he said from the beginning, which I do, you know, I agree with to a certain extent. He's he says he's a character actor, and so he can play anything, and that is what actors are supposed to do. But mm-hmm. the reality is that some are going to do it better than others based on the experience they bring, and. Right. And or sometimes just physical features that mm-hmm. someone else can do it, but maybe not as well. Um, I always think of this. Did you guys? I'm presuming you've seen um, Moulin Rouge. Yes. Do you remember Derek. that? <laughs> Derek, Derek, I'm sure uh, is one of is, his uh, favorites. Noticeably quiet. <laughs> uh, I've seen parts of it. Uh-huh. But there is that scene where um, Nicole Kidman is going to walk, like the show must go on songs going and they have this wide angle of her and she just lifts her head up. But because mm-hmm. she's so tall and elegant, it, it works in a way that an actress who wasn't as tall or had her features or had that, it just wouldn't work in the same way. Not that it wouldn't work, but that every, there are some people who are going to be better in certain roles than others. And that's not something that any actor wants to hear. Um, But I think that he, Michael's arrogance in that moment of I can do a woman show is just an extension of his arrogance that he can play any character. Even like in the beginning where he's, I'm playing whatever Jimmy, the 12 year old boy. We're clearly not. Well, suitable for that role. It's so interesting because they're again, like I part of what I love about this movie is it's really complex. Like, especially the character of Michael. I mean, mm-hmm. that scene in particular, yes, there is so much arrogance happening right now because of him feeling like I really could do this and now I have this like appreciation for what it's like to be a woman. But also I do think that there's a genuine eagerness to try to whatever spread the word yeah. gospel of like how hard it is yeah, he, feels, he feels like he's changed he's like yeah look what i've learned yeah absolutely. yeah so i see i see a look on your face Derek. i don't i mean I, I i understand what you're saying and i wonder 
throughout most of this movie, whether he really does or whether he just is choosing to use that for his character. Well, I mean, that's an interesting point, because I think if you if you choose not to believe that there's a sincerity there, I think that gives you a very different outlook on the film as a whole um, Mm. and his character arc. But I mean, I we talked about this last night. So, you know, we, we almost exclusively like we'll watch the film the night before we speak to our guest. And so just last night when we were watching it, you know, we were talking about how there's this kind of weird. um. I don't know how to explain it. Like where he's, it's almost too meta. Like, cause Dustin Hoffman okay. is an actor yeah. and, yeah. and he, you know, there's, you were speaking just a couple minutes ago about one of the uncredited writers on the film, Elaine May. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, of kind of controversy surrounding like whose idea this movie was and how much did each person contribute to it. And Dustin Hoffman says like how he, he had the idea for the film okay, and, and how part of it came out of his experiences and like realizing what it might be for a woman, especially a conventionally unattractive woman moving through the world. We're really beating and, up his looks as a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also what I thought was fascinating, like I've never seen so many writers on a film that actually did so well. And actually came out right. I a, yeah, yeah. It shouldn't yeah. be as cohesive as it is without no. any hands. <laughs> yeah, no. I was like, and I didn't. I just never realized that before I started doing my research on the movie. Um, but yeah, there's like a lot of weird, kind of messy connections between who Dustin Hoffman is what he wanted this film to be, who he is in the movie as a character, what the character learns. And is that also like just coming from what Dustin Hoffman says he learned about being an actor in this industry? Like it's so weird and muddled and meta, but it's makes it really kind of fascinating. Well, and I, it, it does. I think the, one of the things that keeps you maybe not paying attention every time to those details and how everything's a little Every time, every time I watch it, there's something else. Is that the balance of humor within this these growth and real stakes for the people? You know, there are stakes for the characters. They have something to lose. Um, you know, and that the the humor balances it out, um, but really keeps just keeps it moving. Sidney Pollock's direction just keeps the whole thing moving and balanced, and that you're it gives you a kind of patience to watch it unfold to, mm-hmm. to learn a little bit more about each character. And, and I mean, Elaine may was said to have really added a lot more character and a lot more texture to it. And that mm-hmm. texture is needed. Like Michael can't learn anything in a vacuum. So he has to be exposed to all of these people for him to get a different perspective than his own. And that I mean, it's really the, his ego is only his own perspective. And the more that he, got exposed to all these other things hopefully he grew i derek i choose to believe that he did grow a bit because otherwise it's really a bummer of an ending (laughs) you raise a fair point it's okay to be uh cynical or a little bit um apprehensive to just go all in and believe it i mean i think he is like maybe maybe he he took something out of it in spite of his initial reason for for like plunging himself into this Mm -hmm. situation 
So I think he he learned, but I think part of that was just based off of how he wanted to portray this character. And that, I think, even goes back to when he was coaching, also, mm-hmm. still awful coach, when he was coaching <laughs> Sandy, who, you know, was originally trying out for the role. Mm-hmm. So you got a little sense that he already knew how he wanted to portray the character. And then once he was like, once he became Dorothy and he goes through the experience of, of being on this show, I think he, I think he does learn something. I just, it's, it's like contrasted with these moments where you feel like he's so purely just trying to have a job and do do some work. Yeah. So yeah balanced with this i don't know how much he's really getting from it versus how much he's just trying to like use this to add on to the character he's playing but i think, you, I think yes, he got something out of it do you, the, the the one of the lines that struck me was it was after his first day and um he didn't want to kiss the um mm-hmm. dr oh, brewster great. um <laughs> Um, just another thing that women have to put up with, which is what did Gina Davis is call him? The tongue. tongue so, yeah. oh. right. That, Oh, just going to happen. You're going to, yeah, he's going to kiss you. Um, even if you don't want it, but he, um, how he, he explained to Jeff, Jeff said, how did he communicate with the director? And he said, well, I told him what I want. He disagreed. I did it anyway. He bawled me out. I apologized. And then he said, I think Dorothy's smarter than me. Like there is something about how he, he had to move through the world as a woman that he realized you do have to kind of negotiate more. And so I think he did recognize that at least based on what he said. Uh, I I mean, it is still driven by his ego. I mean, he, he goes up for the part because his agent tells him that no one will hire him. Right. Yeah. It's like almost not a dare, but you know. To what you were saying about when he's relaying how the day went to Jeff, it's actually a really, really great moment when you see him, like, uh, you see kind of like, what is it? The things, the gears, the turning. gears turning in his head. Thank sure. you. Yeah. When that moment happens, you see him about to unload on mm-hmm. the director, on Dabney Coleman. And then you see him pull back and realize, no, I can't do that. And he's like, well, right. I'm very sorry, you know, and yeah. uh, it was wrong of me to do that. Yeah. And you see, it, it's such an interesting moment. Well, he does that a lot as Dorothy is that as Michael, he, there's a lot more movement than there is as Dorothy. Like Dorothy stands more still mm-hmm. in different moments. Um, I mean, not everything, like certainly the whole baby thing and that's funny and everything, but like, there's just moments where she's just, she, she, she is just standing there while someone else might be doing stuff. Cause she realizes that she has to consider how she's going to respond and she needs a little bit of centerness before doing that. Hmm. One thing that I thought was really interesting with, um, with some of the casting choices Mm-hmm. Is that especially with Dabney Coleman, and this is something that I think was very much a part of the 80s, and then it kind of like really moved away from it in the 90s and beyond, where people are cast like they they look older than they ever would be today. Hmm. Like the guy oh, that they true. call the tongue. I mean, how old is he in this movie? <laughs> I mean, the that's Funky that, Brewster's dad. What is right. he doing giving ladies the tongue? Exactly. Like, yeah. I just, like, I think it's great. I think because there's, I think what I'm, I guess, um, 
speaking to is the growing ageism. I thought you were going to talk about in, mustaches. In, uh, <laughs> in, in film. <laughs> but I just thought that that was really, because I kind of noticed it now, this isn't an 80s film, but the one film I always call out about this that I'm like, it's almost too much in the opposite direction is in Jaws, the little boy's parents. <laughs> I oh, mean, right. they look like they're like, be there's no way grandparents and great grandparents of this yeah, kid. There's no way, right? It was so like I well, I can't like not see that every time I watch that movie, which I adore. But you're going even further back in the birds, Hitchcock's yeah. The Birds. There's like a, a thing where we were talking about like that's interesting. Yeah, like it's just I it, I guess it's a little a little bit of a neither here nor there comment, but um I love him. He's so fun, and that's one thing that like to kind of bring it back to the writing aspect of it. What I think was the most shocking to me was how funny this movie was yeah. with having so many, you know, cooks in the kitchen and yeah. how they made it work. And I, I'm, I'm just like scratching my head how they made it work because of all the different uh, contributions to it. All but, of the great performances probably helped. Yeah. Yeah. It was casted yeah. very well. Well, and, and with it, um, I mean, again, Elaine May, I can see her in it. I don't know enough about the other writers. Wasn't one of them who did shape? He did um, Mash, right? The TV show. Yes, Mash? Oh. Larry Gelbert. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Sidney Pollock was a was like a dialogue director before, so he has some experience in that, and just in terms of rhythm of getting the rhythm of stuff, and because he let some ad lib, I'm sure it helped. But um, yeah, it's there's even the moment there's so many subtle things that are hilarious to me in the moment when Michael's doing his big reveal and he can't figure out what to say. So he starts to go. Yeah, right. He goes, just, just, just. And in the control room, Rita's like, don't, don't, don't panic. Like that kind of rhythm around it is so great. And the, the um, buttons that he does at the end, a different, um, scenes that even kind of a serious scene mm -hmm. um a little bit more serious scene something will just kind of a button to get it uh, i don't know it is i could just sit here and quote lines because it's hilarious it well seriously i think like the mvp line of this entire movie <laughs> is does like, jeff know uh what's that oh does oh, jeff I know? Just, that, no that one's great that one is great <laughs> i love when uh the first, Rita, uh, the first when, reading, right? Yeah, when she's asking the cameraman, "How far can you pull back?" and he's uh, like, "How do you feel about Cleveland?" How do you feel about Cleveland? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's it's so awful for, for Dorothy, but it is so good. And then I love how that becomes a little bit of a runner through the the movie because then at one point, zoom in. Yeah, and they're like, "Not too close." <laughs> Not too close. <laughs> so good. Um, so good. And that was one where, where Ron or Dabney Coleman in particular was yeah. like, immediately like, yeah. no. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. One, so, so we've mentioned him a couple times now. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Sidney Pollock because I find it so interesting just him as a figure in the industry to be a director who also liked to act a lot. Yeah. I'm trying oh, to think he, of. He was good. He's, I don't he's, know if he started out that way or not. Do you know? 
Um, no, I think that like from what I researched, he kind of just did a lot of directing in TV and and then eventually kind of almost exclusively moved into film, but that, you know, kind of as he was moving through his career, he just started acting and stuff. And he technically has more acting credits than he has directing credits. Oh, wow. Yeah, really interesting. But I mean, as far as this particular, I I wonder if this maybe sparked something in him because, um, I mean, this is still relatively speaking early-ish in his career. Midway through, midway through. Yeah. And um, he didn't want to be an actor in this particular film. And for whatever reason, from what I read, and I mean, I do take a grain of salt with everything that's like posted, but um, Hoffman was the one who was like, Hmm. no, you need to be my agent. Like, we need to have this conflict between us. Well, because it it was just an extension of the conflict they were having before that. I I mean, I think, right, that Justin Hoffman had a great deal of of power in terms of getting movies made at this point. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they had to give him a director like Sidney Pollack. I mean, Sidney Pollack directed Barbara Streisand in the way we were. I mean, she, he knows how to handle, and I love Barbara, but he, he knows how to ha- handle and direct big personalities. He did three days of the condor, um, Jeremiah Johnson. And he had, he's worked with a lot of strong female characters, like, cause there's Faye Dunaway, Barbara Streisand and, and uh, Jane Fonda in those three movies. And so he came with a lot of experience to balance that but yeah i i've heard the same thing anna that basically that he dustin hoffman wanted him to do that because he liked the energy and he thought that was perfect for that relationship and it really was so good yeah it was a it was a good instinct it was a good instinct to push and he's great in it i did you were you aware of that derek no i literally didn't know that that he was the director and Mm -hmm. also in this movie until like when do we start recording? <laughs> I just I just realized that now and, and thought, oh, wow, that's amazing. Because I've actually known him more just for his acting, for his mm-hmm. acting performances. Oh, okay. Okay, that's him, interesting. I mean, the, the other movie I remember him like having a really interesting performance, I guess, is uh, Changing Lanes with Ben oh. Affleck and Samuel... Okay. That's, yeah. That is an interesting. Oh wow! Movie. He plays. <laughs> I said you were going to. I said you were going to say his eyes wide shut performance. I I no. I know him mostly as an actor from Will and Grace. So yes, that's right. Yeah, but I do I do as an actor identify him first with this movie. Now I will. Yeah. <laughs> but no, he's great in it, and I mean. Uh, as much as I was kind of gushing on, I mean, I think deservedly so, but gushing on the, the quality of all the actors in this film, I mean, it's a, it's a huge ensemble cast. Um, a lot of people that including Dustin Hoffman, you know, because they were in kind of the primes of their careers could have been difficult. I don't know. I never really heard much beyond kind of Dustin Hoffman just being that person all the time. Um, and so for him to be able to kind of control that and direct it, lead that group is amazing. Um, Right. And also kind of wrangle it's wrangle all those people and that story in such a way mm -hmm. that he had to have a clear enough vision, despite all of the perhaps different ideas to give them space for those ideas. But then he still had to, he had to pick because you didn't have a kind of cohesive writing voice on it. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Now I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that had to be Sidney Pollack because there was just too much, too many other writers that he had to kind of bring that together. But I don't, I don't know. I think, I think Dustin Hoffman gives a lot of credit to Elaine May and stuff that I've read. He does. Because yeah. I am, he doesn't. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, I know that there's like a little bit of controversy. Um, I just um, love the way you said that. With, <laughs> with, with one of the writers, one of the credited writers, Larry Gelbart, who, you know, kind of takes issue or has gone on record of taking oh. issue with, the way that Hoffman kind of relays the story of like whose idea it was and the whole thing about yeah. a man learning about more about himself by being a woman. Um, because I guess Hoffman uh, was good friends with a gentleman, one of the third credited writer on this film. There's Don McGuire, Gary Gelbard, and Marie, I am going to butcher his last name, Shiskel. That might not be too bad. Um, he, <laughs> he just passed in October. Um, but they were friends. And so I think Hoffman gives a lot of credit to Schiskel, whereas Gilbert's like, no, that's not really the way that it happened. Like the yeah. idea of this person learning more about himself by, you know, literally walking in the shoes of a, of a woman was kind of more my thing. And he is the mash guy, Gelbart. So mm. who who knows? Who knows? But I, I will say this. There are eight writers I, on this. Is that correct? Well, there might even be more. It's just that <laughs> actually the WGA, they had to go through arbitration because so many writers came to them saying, I deserve credit wow. for having worked on this script. Wow. And so it delayed the release of the film because they had to get that all sorted. And of all the people who I'm aware of, only one woman, Elaine May, um, that who we've been speaking of, has any kind of known connection to it. And so I also think that that's so interesting that this idea that so heavily relies on, you know, showing what it is like, we've used this term several times now, but what it is like for a woman to walk through this world had no female writers on it until, yeah. <laughs> until Elaine May. Like, that's crazy to me. That's a bit ironic. But it's, uh, you know, it's the 80s movie um, for that time in history. Probably not that shocking. Um, no. So, well, but as far as story goes, like a couple of things I did want to bring up, and I just was curious for both of your perspectives on it, because there were some things where I was like, well, I don't really know if that was needed. Um, I love. <laughs> <laughs> we could have used one more writer on this. <laughs> I I love the character of Jeff, so I love that that he is part of the story. But I felt like this whole idea that Michael. I mean, part of it was, yeah, he wanted to prove that he can like get work, but also he's like, no, I'm going to get this $8,000 mm -hmm. so I can help produce my friend's plate. That felt like a little unnecessary. Yeah. Just for, for everyone's knowledge, that would be the equivalent of about 22,000 or so. Little, Derek did the math because we were like, how much? Wow. You really do research for this. Good for you. <laughs> but I mean, I know it's like not a huge deal, but Deanna, how do you feel about that one kind of like motivation for him doing it? Was that really something that you felt added to the story? I did because it meant that for Michael, who doesn't see himself as having this kind of ego, it gives him a good cause. Okay. And so I think, but, but I also think that it maybe what Jeff does is flesh out Michael's theater world a little more mm -hmm. you know that he 
he is, well, he's going to go and make money on this TV show, but he's his character actor and he's doing all this. And so having, having friends in that world, I think kind of fleshes out his character in that world a bit more. Um, and also leads to that great line about the play. What is it? Return to love canal. Like, yeah. Nobody, wa- nobody wants to do that. They just go to New Jersey or whatever it is. But, um, yeah. <laughs> But I do. I mean, I I guess I it doesn't bother me as much because I see it as another way to that Michael can kind of justify his approach. He's doing it for a good reason. No, that's actually a really fair fair assessment of it because I think that also gives a little bit of um, softness to Michael that he's trying to do something for his friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's also self serving because he's going right. to have a role in it, so yeah. you can't really extricate that. <laughs> I feel like no matter what he does, there is there's always the element of it being self-serving. Yeah. It's, but, it's interesting that he wanted to get the play. He, he wanted the eight grand to get the play made so that he could star in this mm-hmm. play. And his solution for doing that was to become a much bigger star on a yes, TV show. Yes. Yeah. And that is, that is interesting too. Cause I'm like, he, it, even if he hasn't been necessarily successful in large part because of his, him being difficult, so-called difficult, uh, he knows how this business works. So it's like, did he never think that they might pick up his contract? Yeah. <laughs> That's actually a really good point. Um, I have never considered that. Huh. Thanks, I mean- Anna. Now I'm Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if they really give us a lot of clarity of how long the initial time on the show was supposed to be obviously a matter of at least a few months for him so. to get as much fame as he did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Just, I mean, we went through probably 20 montages, so I think it's probably, yeah. I mean, yes. we are going strong with the montage strong on them. First, I agree. First episode of season two. <laughs> I mean, it begins, the movie begins with the montage. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think if nothing else, his fame now from, from the soap opera probably going to be really good for that play yeah oh for, people, yeah you know i mean what is the saying that uh like no news is bad news or what is it no there's no bad press or something there's like no that. bad press thank you yeah yeah thank so you. everyone's gonna go want to see this play now with this guy that was this lady <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be a whole thing it's gonna be a whole thing yeah um yeah, I just was kind of like, how how did that not occur to you that you might be on this for a lot longer? Which actually kind of ties into something that I wanted to bring up, um, which is him going for the weekend to Julie's. The reason why I feel like they're connected is because it's this whole idea of keeping up appearances. That was and, an insane idea for him to agree right? with that. I mean, Deanna, you tell me how oh. he, he is so lucky that he didn't get found out, but like... That was that was a bad idea, right? Uh, it was a terrible idea, but it is that's because he's just infatuated with Julie, and right. so he's I, that's all that's around that. Because Jeff even tells him, I think this is a bad idea, but he does it. He does it anyway because, I mean, you can see it from the beginning when he sees her; she's just different than mm-hmm. um, anyone he's met before. But yeah, that's that's where she is. Um, love interest. That's what those scenes are about. I love Julie as love interest. The, the preparation to include a second wig with rollers. 
Yeah, a lot of. I mean, that's, yes. that's what thinking. Yeah, yeah. Pro move. it was really good. And when <laughs> and when turning in bed at the end, it doesn't move. That was my that was my favorite. I mean, the scene where they are in bed and she's telling him about her childhood and the wallpaper and you know he that is again a moment where he gains a new appreciation for right. her as a person yeah. and not just somebody he wants to bang yeah um dang so well it's true but uh yeah but it's very true he says it, it basically it's so crazy to me that he given how high he knows the stakes are for not getting found out. I'm like, you really have a thing for this chick because for you to risk all of that for a mm. weekend. It's not the first time you did it though. Yeah, he's, no, he does a couple bonehead things. I know yeah. what you're going to say, what you're going to say. At the the, <laughs> the party when he, yes. like the day after oh, he, she yes. gets yeah. that line and he reads it back and she's like, hmm, I've only said that to one other to one person. person. <laughs> and you know what? Now that I think about it, it kind of looks like, it kind of looks like him <laughs> just stresses something's going on here. So she should have just that. said, can you put some glasses on for me? <laughs> fluff, fluff your hair a little bit. <laughs> and he would have said, yes, yes, I know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Um, yeah, that that was probably for me the biggest like what moment in the movie where in an otherwise really stellar film, I was like, yeah, I think it set up a lot of other things, though. It was it was perhaps not a realistic choice by the character to do this, but it set up all of these other things because it sets up a little bit more of the relationship with the dad and kind of the the humor and punchline around that. He does grow a bit, Um, although I have to say in during one of the montages, did you notice that Julie licks her finger then puts it into a pan and then passes yes. it over to him to lick now anna i love you but i'm sorry i'm not gonna have you lick from my finger ever yana i said the exact same thing last night yeah that is why we're friends because was- right verbatim i said the same thing to derek i go i love my friends but i am not letting any of them lick off my fingers <laughs> yeah that's that's a hard pass that's no, no. that's a no <laughs> Oh, you got something in your finger. Wash your hands. I mean, I don't, I don't even know if I've done that with you. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I have no memory of that, especially in a, as part of any montage. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've not done that. Like maybe a fork. That's yeah. Okay, extent. a fork. Yeah, yeah. That right. would have been a, a better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. most that we ever get like that with food is me being like, hey, I'm not hungry anymore. You want the rest of this? And he just takes it <laughs> off the plate and, and we keep our distance. Um, but- Ultimately, that, that weekend trip was necessary to properly set up the love rectangle. And that's what I right. wanted to get yeah. next is, I mean, how how do we feel about less? Less is, um, hmm. I think less is um, an example of, I don't know, he's he's very, I would like to say he's specific to that time, but it, there's probably a lot of men like him now. But I think um, this his idea of, oh, I believe in equality, but I remember his, but I think women really want this and that's not possible. So right. I, that kind of, I'm going to speak for what I think women want is an example of why we need more understanding of what women go through. 
he was portrayed as this I don't know if I really... articulated that very well. Yeah, no, no, yeah. no. No, he I mean, he was portrayed as this really wholesome character in in mm-hmm, many ways. Mm-hmm. But yeah, his idea of of equality among genders mm-hmm. is like, yeah, I'm totally fine with it as long as women are kind of subservient to men. <laughs> as, as long as it's like it was before when men were men and women were women. Then exactly. And then, then everyone he, can be says, when he says, like, yeah, I'm seeing someone else, don't think I didn't check her out. What did you do? Yeah, what is, what that, is mean? What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, did oh, you okay. make her submit to some kind of, I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah, he's an interesting character because, I mean, Charles Durning does a great job of making him a sympathetic character. I mean, yeah. he does a great, mm-hmm. a great job of performing that role. And I agree with you, Deanna, I think for who he is, the age that he is, the era in which we are in, it does not surprise me in the least that he uh, has the viewpoints that he does. What I thought was really interesting is during that that uh, exchange between him and Dorothy at his farm, I, I was trying to figure out why Dorothy was not... Uh, arguing his points more like mm-hmm. was it just because in that moment she just realizes that she kind of realizes what's happening and that he maybe has feelings for her and she just wants to get out of the situation but I felt like at that point in the film given what she's already learned about being a woman in the world that she would have maybe spoken up more and she's just like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to everything that he's saying well it could be that but it also could just be that is Julie's dad and she pretty much raised sure. I mean he raised her and that even within his ideas of how, what women should be and what men should be, he seems to be completely embracing and loving his daughter who had a baby out of wedlock and right. Mm -hmm. All of these things that you would think that he would frown upon, but Mm -hmm. he just loves and supports her. So there's a certain point when you just, with people you love family, you're going to keep your mouth shut if you disagree with them because it's just, better and if um i'm sleeping out, there but i'm sorry hmm sorry go ahead no i, I said I'm, I'm making a leap but like that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> i just thought that if um if dorothy had had pushed back on on less i think is the dad's name then mm-hmm. it would have kind of changed that character because where I, I don't really know where he would have gone after that but by just kind of going along with it it let less continue to to kind of like be this on the surface at least kind of like wholesome like good-natured character Mm -hmm. but if he had if if dorothy was pushing back on some of the advances would he have just kept going would it have been oh yeah i mean the advances are less advances i agree that's a that's a whole other yeah awkward Mm -hmm. thing um but I, i guess she probably just didn't know what to do or he didn't know what to do because that i mean i haven't been quite in that situation but there's sometimes that been like i don't want to like completely embarrass this guy but i have to get out of the room because i like i am not interested and so you um she that's a somewhat natural reaction i I can't shut you down completely because i'm just this is also awkward so no that's actually that's that's a really interesting perspective because that like framed that way actually then 
I mean, yeah, I've been in that situation too. Some, I mean, I'm not necessarily proud sometimes of like lack of speaking right. up, but sometimes you're just yeah. like, uh-huh, uh-huh, because you're just like trying to figure out your exit strategy rather than engaging with that person, Yeah, which is a very common thing that women have to deal with. Um, so that's interesting. Maybe that was the intention in that scene is just showing her discomfort, but given the relationship between her, Julie, and the dad and and her being a guest in their home and all of these mm-hmm. things, maybe that's why she just didn't say anything. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, that, that also was something I found really surprising uh, about the film. And I was kind of curious because it didn't necessarily have to be in it, the fact that Julie was a mom. And not just a mom, yeah. but a mom that had never been married. So yeah. I thought, again, like I'm thinking 1982, that still was, I mean, it. I, I think that was definitely predating, you know, kind of where we're at now, where many women very deliberately decide, well, I want to have a family and I don't need to be married to do it or even be in a relationship to do it. Right. And I think at that time it was, it was much more scandalous. Um, and it's kind of not breezed over because you can see, uh, Michael Dorothy clock it when, when Julie says, right. oh, no, I've never been married. Yeah. Uh, so you see him react to it, but then that's it. I think it gives her a maturity that perhaps the that's character fun. wouldn't have without it. Um, you know, that she's able to make, to do challenging things and she's able to make the, the difficult, you know, the decision to have a child on your own and not be married is a big one. And so the fact that she can do that, I think helps that character who could, I mean, if, if she, the only thing we knew about her was she was dating her sleazy boss. Yeah. Right. That's not... And so I think maybe it adds that to it. But yeah, it certainly was very uncommon. I mean, 1982. I mean, it was uncommon on film. I don't know how uncommon it was. Right. I mean, speaking of Ron and being sleazy, was anybody else (laughs) surprised that, like, unless I, unless my eyes were deceiving me, when Dorothy sees him kissing somebody else, the other person he's kissing is April. Yes. That was super disappointing. But yes, that's what happens. Yeah. yeah. I was shocked. Gross. That, yeah. I mean, it's gross for him to just be cheating, period, full stop. But the fact that, like, they used that character for it, I thought was really surprising because, like, I liked her. She didn't She didn't have a lot to do in this movie, to be really honest, except for providing a vehicle. Be half for, naked. Yeah, be half naked and make uh, Michael feel really uncomfortable in their dressing room. And provide yeah. a, a little bit of, you know, comic relief. Um, I'm just going to say right now, I really hope that we are past the point where a character is, like, introduced in their bra and undies for, like, no good reason. Uh, I mean, that is literally the first image you get of her. Yeah. Right. And I have to say, that is not that common. I haven't been backstage in a lot But I've been in enough. I've worked backstage enough and gone into dressing rooms that this rarely happens. That they're just walking around in there. I mean, I know that there's like a closeness and an intimacy in this family like atmosphere on projects, but also just as a person in the world, like 
I don't, and I just don't like walk around in my underwear. Like I, I don't know. It just. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I certainly would say that I don't do that at work, but <laughs> yeah. now like I work from but home. You, so... Now you work from home. So what is <laughs> so it? So <laughs> kind of do I get? It. I don't know. Not during work. <laughs> not at least not during Zoom calls. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I I found yeah. that a little disappointing. I felt like given how big the show is that they could have just had some kind of nameless actress be the person that he was making out with. Kind of like in a, it's going to be a really weird comparison, but in some kind of wonderful when uh, Eric Stoltz yeah. sees Leah Thompson's boyfriend making out with somebody who actually turns out to be what's her face from the band. Um <laughs> Let's see where this goes. <laughs> From uh, she's the daughter of one of the moms and the papas. Oh, okay. Yeah. She has, wait, China Phillips or yeah, Mackenzie Phillips? Thank you, China Phillips. Uh, China Phillips. Okay. Craig Schiffer is yeah. making out with her in the hallway at school, and it's like the same kind of thing. But for the purposes of that film, she's just like some random chick. Like she doesn't play a bigger role in the movie, whereas April ostensibly does yeah even though right they didn't it could have been anybody else he was he was kissing yeah it would have been it would have felt better about that choice yeah because then it kind of colors the way you see her yeah Um, she's already having to put up with the old doctor kissing her and and it would have been fine if they had maybe set her up to be somebody who was like more conniving or maybe trying to go after julie's role but they don't Mm -hmm. they set her up to be this really nice wholesome person so it was just weird but um, also I'll say, say this, say it. uh, when we were <laughs> talking just a minute ago about advances, physical advances. So the scene where John Van Horn comes to Dorothy's mm-hmm. apartment. Yeah. How do we feel about that scene? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's played as funny but one thing I appreciate about afterwards is even though Jeff jokes about it, right? He After he leaves, he says, you slut, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Michael never jokes about it. And I, yeah. I liked that. I liked that choice because I think, I mean, it really could have escalated. And from this seemingly harmless, like dirty old man, right? That's mm-hmm. the idea but that it could have escalated and that I I really appreciate that he takes it seriously. And I don't know the value of why it needed to be in there. Agreed. Exactly. Um, but I do really like the, and this is, this is what's hard for me in terms of, I don't think it needs to be there, but the kind of stupidity of that character and how after the reveal, when he does say, just just no, to me is one of my favorite <laughs> moments because he's just, Oh, he's not right. Um, but yeah, I don't know that it had to be in there, but I like that if it was, it feels like at least Michael took it seriously because he felt like he had to bring him up. Right. He, he felt yeah. like he had to yes. let me diffuse the situation, yes. which I think is something that women tend to yep. do. Like I can't make a big yep. deal about this. Let me just diffuse it. And yep. I mean, the reality is you shouldn't be in that position in the first place. You should just say, I don't want to date you. And they should leave yeah. you alone. You need to go home or I'm calling the cops. Right. 
And right. and I think you're absolutely right. And maybe that plays into what we were talking about with the scene between Dorothy slash Michael and Les when she's in their home where again now she is she is living and and acting as a woman and so she's she's mm-hmm. making choices that probably a lot of women would make. So, you know, she lets him come up because she's, you know, doesn't want the scene to be made mm-hmm. of him singing. And then once he does come up and then he's like, can I just have a drink? And so she relents and then lets him have yeah. it. And you could see that she's just like frustrated by this. And so she's like, okay, fine, one drink. And so she yeah. lets him have the drink. And and I think you're right. I think that they – and it's – you know, look, we've talked about this with like so many of the films that we've covered so far. It's kind of a very 80s thing. I do not think that scene would play out the same way today. Um, right. I mean, a lot of things wouldn't play out in this movie the same way today. But – I do also appreciate that he does take it seriously. And, you know, he says rope, uh, rape, pardon me, is, right. is yeah. not a joking matter. And maybe some people might laugh at that line, but I think he is saying it with serious intent. It's very serious intent. Yeah. In that moment. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I got to hand it in a way to the actor who plays John Van Horn, George Gaines. He kind of didn't have an easy role to take on. Because he is just kind of this slimy dude, but there is a, oh, it's gonna be tricky to say this, but there's like a certain amount of like endearment, maybe because he is so dense. That is the word that popped into my head. Like he's yeah. somewhat endearing. He's like an endearing, slimy old man. And yeah. that's a hard balance. It's I don't, a hard um, balance. <laughs> I don't trust seemingly endearing, slimy old men as a rule. You should not. You in shouldn't. Particular because of the events of the last few years, mm. I think, is this just like an idiotic old dude? Maybe, maybe I not. I know. Yeah, but I'm the guy you're talking about has guy. never been endearing. So right. There's, there's nothing about that individual. <laughs> nothing that ever. Endearing. That individual was famously featured in Home Alone 2, and everyone loved it, though. Uh, yeah. So there was a Did time. I? I'm not comparing, you know, John Van Brewster's dad. Yeah, I'm not... I'm not <laughs> I'm not making that comparison. I'm just saying. Don't you dare. I'm just saying I've been hurt. I'm very guarded. (laughs) You've been traumatized. I get it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, yeah, but he pulls it off and and maybe I'm curious, Mm -hmm. you know, because I was saying earlier, like it was interesting that they cast somebody, you know, who looks older in that role, but maybe that's also why, because if it had been somebody younger, with, you know, it would have been. Well, and he's also, it's like he's been, he's been around forever. So they kind of accept him and he's been on this soap forever and he can't remember his lines and he, right. He's like an institution on that. Man, he is so so terrible at his lines. Uh, Make sure it's on the teleprompter with loudly. loudly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's so good. Um, Yeah. I mean, okay. So, I mean, so much that we've brought up plays into this question but oh i mean how 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 do you feel that the film stands up now that we're almost 40 years removed from it and this idea of you're right it is it's not a story about a guy in drag but do you feel that it still has like pertinent lessons yes but i think only because we still have a long way to go right? Um, yeah. in, in terms of our perceptions of how people should behave or um, 
but but I think that the reason I think it holds up is that it's still really funny, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. and it it doesn't pretend to be anything outside of the world that it's in, right? New York in that time, and so mm-hmm. it's it doesn't look like um, New York now, but at the same time, I just feel like it's very there's a lot of tangible. Even the way the Sydney Pollock films it, like on the on the streets, how he filmed it, or and he filmed the, um, the autograph scenes where you mm-hmm. see the cabs going by mm-hmm. behind in the glass. There's just different things where he really creates the world, and I think that it holds up because it's not. I don't. I don't know. I I just still really enjoy it, but it's the lessons still hold up. But yes, there's problems, and I don't. I don't know that those will go away. Um, but at least it, because it was done well, and I think with a certain amount of respect and balance, mm-hmm. you're willing to accept the kind of yeah. concerning things. Yeah, no, I think like it, it, a lot of the jokes are based on, on like ideas where now one might say, well, why is that funny? You know, and, and it, it does so in a way, like you said, that's balanced and it's not, the jokes now you can kind of see them for being kind of problematic in 2021, mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily mean spirited or mm-hmm. aggressive in the way that the the jokes come through. So like I can watch it and I can still appreciate it. And there's, there's certainly some analysis to be had about some of the jokes and some of the stereotypes that are in the movie, but I think it's still, it's still a good movie and great mm-hmm. performances and it does everything in a way that you don't like we've watched some, some maybe eighties movies where you just think, well, that's crazy. I don't even know how they, they, they couldn't do that mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. And I know that they are like, they, they are very have a stage, a, a stage performance of Tootsie or are they oh, did they getting ready to do it? Oh. Or was it affected by COVID? I don't know, mm. but they were oh, planning on doing some kind of adaption. Adaptation. Well, that would be interesting to see how they would make the changes in, in if they were trying to place it in 2021. But yeah. I, I think some of the comments, I mean, some of the comments or, or the things about him and the obvious jokes, some of them still hold up. Like the Cleveland joke yeah. still works. It's hilarious. Right? It's just funny. It's hilarious. I mean, yeah, it just yeah. Is. Right. It's just objectively funny. But then, but then they were measured in how they did this. Um, when when Michael's trying to figure out what he's going to wear and he keeps talking about, well, this my bus doesn't look good in this, and he keeps talking about his outfits, and then Jeff just says, we're getting into a weird area here. Yeah. That, like, that is, that's a good line because that's a normal response. Like, yeah. What is, what is happening? <laughs> like, why? So that when, he's not, go ahead. Oh, go yeah. ahead. Well, I was just say, with, say, I was gonna say, trying to explain to, uh, to his agent about all the like, convoluted relationships and how, Julie thinks he's a lesbian uh, and then mm-hmm. Sandy thinks he's gay and, you know, like just the the humor doesn't come out of him simply having somebody think he's gay or lesbian. It's the confusion of the moment and the agent trying to keep all these relationships yeah. straight. It's not that there's right. necessarily anything wrong with any of those yeah. things. It's just, like you said, the confusion that's coming from him in all these multiple roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like when, uh, like one of my favorite lines is when Dorothy, you know, she isn't going to even be given a read. 
because Ron just immediately looks at her and and so when she has her (laughs) first moment of outrage of which she has several and Rita comes out to say was that a performance or were you legitimately upset and she said well which one's going to get me a reading like that's right it's funny but it's also like the reason why that holds up in particular is because that is still really kind of timely and relevant to like were you doing that just to get attention or were, you know, yeah. I, so kind of like what I was saying before, I think that the things that they could have really gone overboard with, they didn't. Yes. And they didn't. that would have made the film hold up n- not nearly to the degree that it, it has because the humor is smart and not mm-hmm. played for cheap jokes. Yeah. And Jeff's yeah. comments were again, because Bill Murray had more of this like subtle, Mm-hmm. performance throughout the movie when he's saying things like it's starting to get weird that was one of those moments where i feel like it could have crossed that that line mm-hmm. and been too mm-hmm. much but it never it like gets right up to that mm-hmm. but it never really crosses over into like i feel kind of awful about mm-hmm. about laughing at this you you know when you mm-hmm. laugh about the cleveland joke or don't zoom in too much or a lot of those jokes there's a part of me it's like uh should, am i supposed to be laughing i don't know but it's funny so i'm just gonna <laughs> laugh Okay. We have really, okay. We have really, I, we have really yeah. we've broken down feminism. We're over ready the last for the second years. half. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this was this was great. Deanna, I knew that this was gonna be an amazing conversation with you. And um yeah, I really love and it, it happens every time that our guests bring to us ideas and perspectives that we didn't necessarily have. Yeah, no, and like I, I, I knew right off the bat that there'd be like stuff coming out of this conversation that I had never thought about yeah. with this movie because just watching it last night for the first time in a while, like, oh, okay, this like I, I just kind of, you know, your perspective changes, and for a movie that's been around for as long as this, and with as much change as we've gone through, knowing that there still needs to be more, it just offered a lot to mm-hmm. uh, to talk about. So, yeah. Deanna, thank you so, so very much for being on the show today. We were so excited to have you on. It was an awesome conversation and open invitation to come back anytime you want. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a lovely conversation. So that was our amazing conversation with our great friend, Deanna. Deanna, thank you so much for being on the show. Yes, thank you. It was awesome. Okay, Derek. Uh huh. Would you watch this film again? Would I watch Tootsie again? Yes. It is an amazing movie with amazing performances. And I think what struck me the most when we first started it, mm-hmm. obviously I knew what the movie was about, but I wondered how, I guess, cringy it was going to be yeah. watching something like, like this in 2021. Mm-hmm. And I think in part because the writing is pretty smart and the acting is amazing, it holds up. So I would definitely watch it again. But it's also one of those movies where I don't know that I'll go out of my way to like watch it from start to end. But if okay. it was on, I would I would definitely watch it. Yeah, I mean, I love this movie. And as much as, you know, I might call out certain things that for me weren't working, which aren't really major things in the film so little i'm kind of nitpicking a little bit on things and maybe calling out um, the size of their apartment 
<laughs> the size of their apartment, which is ridiculous. It's We're like a, neither it's one like of a us. Friends world where yeah. their apartments are like way nicer than they should be. We don't have any money, but we have a, a, a studio like in New basically York. Basically, the entire floor of that building. It, it fit like, like forty people yeah, for that it birthday was party. Crazy. Yeah. Um. So yes, that's true. But yeah, I I I love this movie because I do think the humor really stands up, and it is that much more amazing to me, given you know the, the whole craziness that we've talked about now several times over regarding the number of the writers <laughs> that were on the film. And I just I do think the humor stands up. I think that it's really clever. I think that in part it's because they didn't go for the low hanging fruit. They it, it's smart and. Yeah, and I and I also just appreciate as somebody who loves comedy that it got the recognition that it did. Yeah. And that it still is considered a really great not just comedy but great film. Yeah. So yeah. um as far as like a call to action. I got one. Ooh, do tell. Yeah. Have you ever and to what extent have you ever stretched the truth? Or just outright lied for a position. Oh, that's a great one. Because I would say he could, he did a little bit of that for this. Just a touch. Yeah. Just a touch. But that being said, please don't submit that uh, response. It would result in you Do losing a job. Do it anonymously? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> we don't want to be responsible for you getting fired. That's such a good question. I mean, if we had like a spinoff podcast, I could definitely go into conversations about like you know fluent in spanish yeah like kind of like <laughs> fibbing a little bit on resumes and like how common that is and but creating an entirely far... uh new identity sure that's taking it a little far yeah um that's a great one okay so yeah i'm gonna hop on board that welcome on board <laughs> that called the action train <laughs> so if you want to get in touch with us uh we'd love to hear from you you can reach out through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and it's the same handle for all three. It is at 80s Montage Pod, and 80s is 80s. That was a great decision to have the same handle for all of those. Well, thank it you. It would be really confusing. Oh, man. Yeah. It was like, I mean, separate. I barely remember how to spell it out every time I talk about it. What so, is it again? like, at 80s Montage Pod. Nice. All right. Sneak peek. Oh, let's see. Um, Hmm. We've covered so much comedy. <laughs> yes. I wonder if at any point we'll we'll kind of take a more serious dramatic mm, mm, mm-hmm. note. How would you feel about perhaps Raging Bull? I'm not familiar with that movie, but let's do it. Wait a minute. Time out. Have you actually never seen Raging Bull? I've never <gasps> seen Raging Bull. <laughs> I didn't know that. Wow. I've seen like a lot of these things. I've seen like bits of it. Like if it's on, I and I recognize that this is like this massively important movie that's talked about all the time. Yeah. So I'll watch portions of it. But I think it's definitely something that I'll get a lot more out of it watching it from start to finish. And yeah. it will be the first time I've ever done that. That's crazy. So this is the first of our films that you are seeing start to finish for the first time. Um, possibly. I, okay. I think Heather's. Oh, okay. Heather's I'd seen most of, but I, I'd actually seen more of Heather's than I had Raging Bull. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like this, look, I love Scorsese. Um, and yeah, as far as like pivoting over to doing a drama, which yeah, this is the first time that we're doing kind of a straight up drama because we do lean towards comedies or like action adventure, that sort of thing. It's our first time watching cinema. Cinema with a capital C. And it, I mean, it is a great movie. 
Um, it was up for Best Picture, you know, directed by Scorsese, has De Niro, has Pesci in it, um, Kathy Moriarty. <laughs> Wait, you're telling me there's a Scorsese movie with uh, De Niro and Joe Pesci? I know, shocking. Whoa. Shocking. Whoa. Uh, and I, I mean... That being said, well, look, we'll get into it in the actual episode. Mm-hmm. It's um, it, it's not, it's not. You know how like a lot of the movies we talk about, we're like, oh yeah, if we were flipping through channels, yeah, and it was on. You have to very much be in a certain kind of. This frame is what of I've mind. learned. Yeah, yeah. by actually yeah. flipping through channels yeah. and seeing bits of it, I'm like, exactly, exactly. But it, it is a great great film all right and it is really important actually in ter- as much as we joke it's a really important film in terms of its like significance in cinema okay so it's going to be a great one and that will be in two weeks coming so thank you so much for hanging with us this time and we will see you then welcome to season two